Really? Go anywhere else. There's a whole house. Sports are important at any time, but of particular focus to us here, we want to focus on how important sports are during war times. Not only do sports provide entertainment and distraction, but among the soldiers, it builds teamwork and camaraderie. It can promote healthy minds and bodies and prevent boredom. In World War I, British officers actually halted the use of sports among their training Subscribing to the theory that it was only going to increase injuries, wear down their soldiers, deplete energy levels, and distract from the greater purpose of fighting in a war. That was at least until certain units began to experience noticeable success in comparison to other units. The secret was that they had been sneaking away to play rugby and soccer in their own time. Sports were brought back as a new training method. It promoted communication, teamwork, and created moments of success, struggle, resilience, and triumph. In the context of Britain, football and rugby made sense. But there were a lot of other countries under the Empire's umbrella, and that included Canada. So what was the Canadian version of this? An early example was the 61st Battalion out of Winnipeg. They were originally created from the Canadian Expeditionary Force members, and it was a hockey team who won the Pattinson Trophy in 1915 and 1916. This was the Manitoban Provincial Championship. They defeated the Winnipeg Monarchs to become the Provincial Champions, and that was the team that had previously won the Allen Cup. Under this challenge method, the 61st also claimed the throne as Canada's Superior Men's Senior Hockey Team. This was actually the last year that the Allen Cup was awarded under a challenge system. Now despite having the first ever Maple Leaf coach, Private Alexander Edward Romero, this was not the most important military sports hockey team in Canada. The 228th Northern Fusiliers Battalion of the Canadian Expeditionary Force was formed and based out of North Bay, Ontario. The goal was to recruit people for the war effort and enter them into a military service that included playing hockey. By 1916, they had teams in the Ontario Hockey Association's Senior and Junior Leagues, and they had three in the Toronto Beaches League. The recruitment efforts were led by Lieutenant Colonel Archibald Erkman. He was a railroad engineer and a longtime sports enthusiast. He had been overseas once but suffered a knee injury and was sent home. When he was 33, he was called to fulfill a recruitment promise made by Prime Minister Robert Borden to add 50,000 Canadian soldiers. Erkman was charged with recruiting 800 of them. Originally, he recruited from the northern areas of Ontario. The Globe and Mail said that, quote, this is probably the most diversified unit ever recruited in Canada including such picturesque types as hunters, trappers, guides, prospectors, Hudson Bay Company employees, and Cree Indians from the James Bay District. The reality was that men were dying in battle, and Canada was heading towards requiring conscription, which eventually did happen in 1917. Erkman was going to help solve the recruitment problem by appealing to sports fans. 
The 228th only played 10 games in the National Hockey Association. They were at times the most popular team and at others the least popular team. They set the stage for the eventual birth of the NHL and they cemented hockey's long-held relationship with the armed services. So who were they? How did it go? And why do they matter to hockey history? Hi, I'm Travis Duncan, and we're back for Season 2. New style, new format, new beard. This is Storytime Hockey. Context is important when we look at the NAJ and the importance of the 228th. First off, players had begun to enlist in larger numbers. Second, the owners needed a team to replace the fallen franchise of the Toronto Shamrocks. And hockey owners have always been kind of like hockey owners. How do they weather a storm? They find a way to use it to their advantage. Lieutenant Colonel Erkman applied to have a team added to the NAJ. The goal was to reassign players from the regiments to their team, borrow them for the time of the war, and return them at the end. At this point, the league was only eight years old, and it was consistently being caught up in ownership battles, violence on the ice, and franchises folding. There was no way that leaning into the patriotic swing of things could be a drawback. It was seen as a way to help cement the league. Erkman believed that the potential quality of the players on the team would, quote, induce eligible men in the audience to see their duty more plainly. So there was the NHA, based on them needing a team, needing to be relevant, needing to protect their investment, and needing to somehow keep their players. What option did they have? The 228th placed a $3,000 bond with the Ocean Accident and Guarantee Corporation to ensure it played a full season. Erkman was confident that they would be able to play the full season and then ship out around March of 1917, so it should be a non-issue for them to complete the 20-game series. All of the players who enlisted in the 228th would be transferred to the team temporarily and returned to their original franchises the next year. There was also an agreement that as of September 27th, 1916, players would no longer be recruited for the 228th. Even before the season started, the 228th began to cause problems for the NAJ, specifically with the Pacific Coast Hockey Association. A truce had been called between the NAJ and the PCHA, which had been spearheaded by the Patrick brothers, Lester and Frank. The two leagues called a truce on poaching each other's players in an attempt to cool the raging battle between the two leagues. Right winger Eddie Oatman was a player coach for the Portland Rosebuds. He was recruited by George McNamara to play for the 228th. Since Oatman enlisted for military service, he joined the 228th. The 228th didn't owe anything to anyone. They were simply sticking to their regular approach of player recruitment. On top of this, the Patrick brothers had donated one of their arena spaces, the Victoria Arena, at a great financial loss to support the war effort. Despite the PCHA protest, the NHA managed to negotiate an agreement that Oatman could return to the PCHA at the end of the war as long as he served overseas. He would not be considered 
one of the new NHA players. Oatman would become a focal point of some other issues caused by the 228th at the end of their season, but we can loop around to that later. So who joined the 228th? George Proger, Howard McNamara, Amos Arbor all joined from the Montreal Canadiens. George Meeking joined from the Ottawa Senators. Harry Cameron, George McNamara, and goalie Percy Lesueur joined from the Toronto Blue Shirts. Art Duncan also joined from the PCAJ. And the Montreal Wanderers and Quebec Bulldogs were untouched. Immediately we begin to see fights and disagreements between Erkman, his GM Leon Reed, and the owner of the Toronto Blue Shirts, Eddie Livingstone. Duke Keats volunteered for the military and had transferred to the 228th, but the team traded his rights back to the Toronto Blue Shirts in exchange for goalie Percy Lesueur. Lesueur practiced with the team but never played. He actually preferred the job of training new recruits, and he spent his military service there. Berkman and Reed decided that since the sewer didn't follow through in the trade, trade didn't really happen, they wanted Keats back. Livingstone was known to be stubborn, and he was not about to be railroaded by some military men. Livingstone had another axe to grind as well. The 228th had moved from North Bay down to Toronto. They took the space and the arena vacated by the Toronto Shamrocks. Livingstone's blue shirts also played out of Toronto and now had to share the market with this patriotic publicity stunt. Livingstone went to the new commissioner, Major Frank Robinson, to determine a solution to this dispute. Erkman, as he became known to do, simply threatened to pull the team out of the league. On November 14, 1916, Robinson ruled that the Blue Shirts could keep Keats. He sided with Eddie Livingstone. Despite that, the battalion would make his participation with the Blue Shirts difficult. A former soldier said that they would assign extra army duties to him leading up to games and make him miss practices. Babe Donnelly, a former soldier, was quoted as saying, Keats did more latrine duty than any dozen other men. Of course, these tactics did not go unnoticed. Two weeks later, when Erkman threatened to leave again over some issue with Keats, Ottawa Senators Executive Martin Rosenthal said it's about time that the 228th people learned that military methods cannot be exercised in the NHA. Eventually, the league was set to kick off. Game 1 was on December 27, 1916, and it saw the Governor General in attendance. The Toronto Star quoted that the team showed that they are also in good condition for so early in the season and there seems to be little left for management to worry about, as the team won the game 10-7 against the Ottawa Senators. Not only was the team's popularity at an all-time high, but so were their results, as they would go to win the first four games, including a 16-9 win over the Quebec Bulldogs. The 228th were must-see hockey, however, sometimes it wasn't always for good reasons. On January 12th, against the Ottawa Senators, Howard McNamara left the penalty box in an attempt to stop the Senators from scoring the go-ahead goal. He earned a major penalty and then slashed Frank Nyber, earning an additional two minutes. He then attacked the referee, Cooper Smeaton, for allowing the goal, and the ref fought back. He was sent out for the game, 
and assigned a $25 fine. On January 20th versus the Blue Shirts, Battalion won 8-6, but again, Erkman and Blue Shirts owner Livingstone got into it with each other. Erkman had said before the game he would not let Duke Keats or Archie Bryden play for the Blue Shirts because the games were getting too rough. In what was clearly a cheap attempt at some gamesmanship, the Daily News reported that, quote, It's hard to believe that the commander of the Fusiliers would take such drastic action. The match was strenuous but no more than any other game, and this excuse will hardly stand. The two players were even arrested for neglecting their military duties before being released shortly after. Despite all this, the season would continue. At a meeting on February 1st in Montreal, General Manager Leon Reed confirmed that the team would complete the season, trying to lower some concerns about the likelihood of them being shipped overseas. This was the same meeting where Sam Lichtenhein, the owner of the Montreal Wanderers, and Eddie Livingstone needed to be separated from coming to blows with each other. Clearly, the NHA was a fun place to be and ownership was really strained. A week later on February 7th, versus the Blue Shirts, Erkman again threatened to quit the league if Keats and Bryden were allowed to play. President Robinson told the Blue Shirts owner at Livingstone to put his team on the ice regardless if the 228th showed up or not. They did, and the Blue Shirts won 4-3. But this is a significant turning point in the history of the 228th. The public perception of this team was changing. Enthusiasm was down, and their antics were getting really old. A commander in the armed forces told the Daily News, There has been too much bickering over Bryden and Keats. They may be good hockey players, but they are not good soldiers. And I am of the opinion that it would have been better for everybody if the 228s did not engage in sports at all. Another senior officer said, You can make this emphatic as you like. We are thoroughly disgusted with the notoriety we have been subjected to in connection to hockey. I am of the opinion that it would have been better for everybody if the 228th had not engaged at all. Where the perception would go from there didn't really matter, because the next day on February 8th in 1917, the battalion received their orders to prepare to ship east for training. They were going to Europe. An emergency meeting of the NHA was held on February 11th. Eddie Livingstone was unable to travel to this meeting, claiming he had a boil on his neck and it was much too painful for him to make his way to Montreal. This meeting became a spark for the end of the National Hockey Association. There were teams in this league that were three games into the second half of the season. The owners needed to navigate what to do with played games and unplayed games and how to proceed with the rest of the year. Sam Lichtenhein of the Wanderers and George Kennedy of the Canadians both openly expressed their disdain for Ed Livingstone. They convinced Mike Quinn, owner of the Quebec Bulldogs, and Martin Rosenthal, an executive from Ottawa, to back their plan. The plan was to suspend the Blue Shirts franchise and disperse their players among the other teams at random. The owners wanted Livingstone gone, and Livingstone wanted to leave as well. 
he was looking to pursue a new US-based league. Players would be dispersed at random, but they would be able to return to the team should Livingstone sell the franchise. As the 228th shipped out east to prepare for training, the backroom deal they had made for some of these players began to come to light. Eddie Oatman had signed to play with the 228 for $1,200, an equivalent value to $28,000 today. He only received 400 of it. When he was sent to St. John's for training with the team, his option to collect payment was declined. Howard McNamara gave him $25 and a check for another $125 from the 228th until he could receive the rest of the money. He was then discharged under special circumstances. Air quotes. He was never to be part of the true group of soldiers headed overseas. His job was simply just to be part of the hockey part. After leaving and arriving in Montreal, Oatman went to cash the check. However, McNamara had contacted the bank ahead of time and instructed them not to pay it. Gordon Meeking of the Ottawa Senators and then the 228th had agreed to play for free. He was simply just going to take some of the money at the end of the season, as well as be given a commission as a lieutenant in the military. When the 228th was sent to St. John's, he was told that this agreement was never actually in place, and he was instructed that he should put on his khakis as a private and get on the train. However, all of his belongings had already been sent ahead to St. John, so he couldn't even change. He was advised to wait in Toronto and join at a later date. When he finally did make his way east, he was discharged as medically unfit and told to find his own way home. In the end, the 228th Battalion left a bit of carnage in their wake. They owed money to some small companies. The William Nelson Company, they owed almost $900 for ice cream. A cake store, they owed $40. A Toronto music store, they owed almost $1,900 for flutes and clarinets. However, they were going to war. They were redesignated the 6th Battalion of the Canadian Railway Troops and built rail lines in Europe. They arrived in France on April 2nd in 1917. After 10 games, the 228th had a record of 6 wins and 4 losses. They had 70 goals for and 57 against. Their leading goal scorer was Eddie Oatman with 17 goals and 22 points. But that was the end of the 228th as a hockey team. Their brief existence in the NAJ left a really twisted legacy. First off was Archibald Erkman. He won medals for the battalion's important work, but left mounting debts in the NAJ. He frequently gambled with his troops and was even court-martialed. Following the war, he operated a relief camp during the Great Depression and was awarded the Distinguished Service Order for highly successful command and leadership during active service. In 1935, he was arrested for embezzlement and sentenced to one year at the Guelph Reformatory. As a hockey team, the 228th left a lot of damage in the NAJ. They made things a lot more difficult. However, they progressed a lot of things as we come to know them today. The league had bent over backwards to accommodate a team of servicemen. This demonstrated the total war effort. Even in the business of entertainment, there was going to be a strong connection to the war. Now this total war effort was either voluntary or voluntary without any other option. The NHA saw all of the shenanigans of Meeking and Oatman and other players as rights to sue 
for the bond that the 228th had placed at the start of the year. The lawsuit saw the court in 1918, and the Ontario Chief Justice of the King's Bench, Sir Glenholm Falconbridge, ruled that the battalion had a higher duty to serve the war effort in active service, not fulfill their obligations to the NAJ, and the suit was dismissed. Eddie Livingstone, he was in a very unique position as well. He claimed that he had been forced into the unenviable position of, quote, protecting the club's vital interests by fighting back against an organization that used a blanket of patriotism to cover selfish plans. Even in the lawsuit for the bond, Frank Calder claimed that the Blue Shirts owner wasn't entitled to any of the money from the bond. It was quite clear that Eddie Livingstone was not in support of the 228th Battalion having a team in the NHJ, but it's also quite clear that the NHJ ownership and the 228th had a significantly larger negative impact individually on Eddie Livingstone than on the other teams. The 228th Battalion represent a massive moment in the changing future of hockey. Organized professional hockey in North America was still relatively new and it was about to change significantly. The NHL was about to be formed. Eddie Livingstone was about to be ousted as an owner and all of that was happening in the backdrop of the First World War. The 228th were not only an interesting quirk of the history of hockey, but they were an integral part of the formation of the NHL. They initiated, or exacerbated, a lot of conflict among the power brokers in the league. They created no shortage of labor-related issues, including compensation, and they created significant questions in regards to fair play, proper contributions to the war effort. Even though they only completed 10 official matches, they certainly impacted the future of hockey, and they left a legacy of one of the most accidentally influential hockey teams in NHL history. <laughs> Storytime Hockey is written and produced by me, Travis Duncan, and I can't believe that I don't have a Manscaped sponsorship. I look at me. Thank you for listening. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok. If you have the option, please click like or subscribe. Leave a rating or a review if you have the time. Everything that you do that creates an interaction increases the chance we get to share this product with someone else. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll talk to you next episode.